Happy Saturday. It's December 25th, 2021, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail, and we wish those who celebrate a very Merry Christmas. Or as George Bailey might say, Merry Christmas, you wonderful building and loan. <laughs> Is anyone even listening to us this morning, Michael, or are they just having like cinnamon rolls and coffee and like tearing through wrapping paper? I don't know. That was my best Jimmy Stewart, though. You know what I figured out this morning when I was just thinking about It's a Wonderful Life? Tell me. That movie came out 75 years ago today. So there you go. It's 75 years since that movie came out. So if that's not a Christmas tradition, what is, right? Still feels fresh as a daisy. What are some of the Christmas traditions in the Haney household? What are you guys up to today? Well, we're in Chicago as I speak to you and visiting my mother and Brooke's family. So it's such a time to get together and just have Christmas Eve at my mother's house and then Christmas Day with Brooke's mother and father. How about you guys? Okay, wait. Does Barbara do her banana bread on Christmas as well? Or is that just like an every other day of the year extravaganza. That's every other day of the year. There's no banana bread except on Christmas morning. Yes, then there's banana bread. By the way, did you know what I found out at our holiday Christmas party? I found out that Barbara is, she's not just generous with me. She's also generous with Graydon's assistant, Jacob, who has been the beneficiary, the very happy one of some of her famous banana bread. What is going on? We were walking down the street a couple months ago when my mother was in town and we ran into Jacob and he was so charming and nice to my mother. And she said to him, do you like banana birds? I don't just like it. I love it. And so she then sent him one. So he now is... It's a recipient, so there you go. I love it. Well, one of the best things about Christmas, Michael, is it means that we have all officially survived the office holiday party, which was such a weird thing this year and a great thing in airmail parlance because we had a fabulous one at the Waverly Inn. But everyone that I talked to said it was so bizarre to get people back in the same room after two plus years of being apart. There were some people I had never even met in person because they'd been hired during lockdown or work from homeland. And so it was wonderful to finally meet new colleagues and also actually hug and see old colleagues. It was one of those more emotional, sometimes you like what we have all had those years where we're like dreading the Christmas party, the office Christmas party. And this was one which I thought you were looking forward to because it was maybe a small sign of normality and reconnecting and with human beings again, that means so much to us. Yeah, exactly. And it's especially poignant, like those of us that work in publishing or other fields that it's all about this amalgamation of ideas, right? Like the sort of, sounds very heady to say, like the intellectual clash of thought, but that's what we thrive on. And it's really great just to get back in a specified area with a bunch of people that we haven't seen in a long time. And I feel like we came up with like 10 great story ideas, just chatting with Adam from the copy department and Laura Jacobs, who runs Arts Intel. Like it was just really wonderful to see all those guys again. And also to reconnect with our marketing team. Like those guys do such a great job out in the field, making sure that the word of airmail is spread far and wide. So anyway, we had an awesome holiday party. I'm still recovering, Michael, a little bit from our dinner afterwards, but it was very fun and always great to spend some QT with you, not just across the screen, but also IRL at where else via Corona. We're so predictable. We're so predictable, but we slipped away and had a little morning meeting dinner to talk about the year and, and this episode and, and go from there. So it was nice, right? Yes, we even planned out the idea for our next podcast. It will be called Evening Rendezvous. <laughs> <laughs> like anyone needs more from us. Anyway, well, let's dive into all the very merry things that are able to be read and discussed and talked about around your holiday table this week in the latest edition of Airmail. Where shall we begin? Well, speaking of evening rendezvous, why don't you start with, I think, a trend that you identified of late. I'm sure everyone might want to celebrate this way, at least looking forward to New Year's Eve. It's a trend that'll make you blush, right? 
This is a weird one, but I love it. So I have to blame my friend Fields for this. She came over to my house once in the fall and I asked her to bring something special to drink and she brought me Bahati Prinsloo's new tequila and it's pink. And this is when I realized that this millennial pink trend is going nowhere if now we even have to drink pink tequila. Like it's such a marketing gimmick and yet it's kind of delicious, it turns out. So rosé, no longer just for wine. It's like, you know, now that people are drinking rosé wine 12 months of the year, they had to come up with something new to get in on this trend. So now some very high-end tequila purveyors are aging their tequila in barrels like you do in wine to give them that red Cabernet tinge of color. So you're seeing a lot of these hit the market now and some of them are pretty good. So Laura Nielsen taste tests them for us and tells us what we should be looking out for. But if you want to look extra festive this New Year's, I highly recommend you bring a bottle of one of these to your party. So they get their blush by aging them in wine barrels, right? Exactly. Yeah. Interessante. It's just a way to infuse it with a bit of color. And like they say that it gives it some extra layers of complexity in terms of the flavor profile. That may all be true. But like the point of tequila is you're not necessarily drinking it for the flavor, right? Like, What are you drinking it for? It's more like your nutritionist is like, this is a better way to get completely out of your mind because it has such a low sugar content, right? Like that's really what's behind the tequila trend. Yeah. It's always people who are like, you know, the great thing about tequila is you can drink it and it has no calories. It's amazing. Yeah, I've tried that before, Michael. Like I ended up like dancing on a bar at Nick and Tony's. Like it was not a good look for me. <laughs> you don't want to put an abuelant person on too much tequila. Like only disastrous things can happen. This is true. Okay, speaking of people like, okay, it's New Year. We're coming up on New Year's and people like start to make resolutions. You know, someone we should talk about is our new beauty and wellness columnist. Linda Wells, right? Linda. I love this woman. There was a little magazine called Allure, and it had a larger-than-life editor named Linda Wells. And Linda spent much of her career building this building this magazine based on the idea that beauty was something that needed to be taken seriously from a science perspective, from a public health perspective, and also from a personal sense of fulfillment perspective. And she really did an incredible job creating a voice for this industry and was not only beloved by those who make beauty products, but also by consumers that enjoy and rely upon them. So she's hugely influential in this realm, and we're thrilled to have her joining Airmail as a columnist for us. She's going to be writing not only about the products that she likes and loves, but also about industry trends, you know, analysis behind what's going on and why. I just love her take on things because it's always totally unconventional. So in her column this week, she talks about the importance of touch in the age of coronavirus, right? In a time when handshakes and hugs are pretty much off limits. Like what exactly does that mean for those of us who rely upon the casual touch of a manicurist, like as an important part of the human experience. And she even talks about how like an emergency root canal in the middle of COVID was met with welcome by her because it did represent a return to that connection that she'd been deprived of. And I was like, this sounds like Michael Haney's worst nightmare. How do you feel about touch from a stranger? Is this too intimate? How do I feel about touch from a stranger? Do we need to do a trigger warning before going into this topic? I feel pretty clear. I don't need any strangers touching me. Not a fan of that. Social distancing has been, I've been doing that for decades. So no problems with that. You're not a massage guy. No. No occasional facial. Are you kidding me? How do you keep your skin looking so supple? Inquiring minds want to know. Yeah, well, that'll be a different episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Find us on Evening Rendezvous. We will tackle all of this and much more. Uh, But no, it's a great column from Linda Wells. And not only does she have some analysis on like why this kind of human attention is important, but she also has some great products to recommend. So Great products to recommend. As Brooke read the first column a couple weeks ago, I said, you know what's great about Linda's column? I said, she recommended all the things I have. 
So great minds think alike. But yes, it's very, for everyone out there who cares about skincare and wellness, Linda will be doing a regular column for us. So it's great to have her here after her years of editing Allure magazine. All right. Well, now that we've been beautified, Michael. How about where we want to go next year and ambitious trips we could take? Well, I feel like you're challenging me to something. All right. On guard, my friend, where are you going? What have you booked? Well, I haven't booked anything yet, but we have a story this week by Marcia DeSanctis, which she fulfills my dream vacation, something I've wanted to do a few years ago. Brooke and I, along with our parents, went on safari in South Africa, and it was the best trip of my life. And it made me think the thing I still want to do is see the gorillas go into Rwanda, where there's one of the world's great preserves of wild gorillas. There's only about a thousand left on the planet. And Marsha went on that trek and has a wonderful sort of riveting and inspiring story about that adventure. All right, Michael. Well, we have a rare treat in store for us. Coming to us from very far across the world, we have Marcia DeSanctis reporting live from the Seychelles, but that is not why she is here. She is a story journalist on many fronts who has seen many hidden parts of the world and shared her stories with us in airmail, which we are always so fortunate to have. And today she is here to talk about a recent trip to see some nature. So welcome, Marcia, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ashley and Michael. It's such a thrill to be on this show. Thanks for asking me. Tell us first how you've been going to Rwanda for about a decade now. Tell us a little bit about how you first discovered this place and what brought you there. I went to Rwanda first in 2011 to do some volunteer work for an NGO. And it's funny, the place gets very much under your skin. And I think part of it is because it's such a small country. It's a post-conflict country. It's an interesting country and on many fronts in that it had this horrible thing happen to it, but it doesn't kind of lean into its victimhood. It's a very forward-thinking country, I would say, rather than just kind of always dwelling on the horrors of 1994 and the genocide. Marcia, you and I have been talking throughout the pandemic about all the places you'll go once the world opens up again. And Rwanda was among the first for you. Can you tell us a little bit about why you chose to go back there first and what drew you to this particular part of the country? I've been to see the gorillas before. It is a once in a lifetime experience that I've actually done three times, always on a story, kind of in a slightly different context. But I was actually very curious to see how this incredible country with a very, very, very highly functioning infrastructure was handling COVID protocol, I guess, as it pertained to the primates, which are kind of, in some way, it's their lifeblood in a sense. They're its most valuable resource. And nothing can happen to these primates because that's because tourism is such a large part of their revenue of their, they don't have a lot of exports and things. So I thought it would be a really interesting angle to see what kind of extra care they're taking of their primates, especially the mountain gorillas, and how those mountain gorillas, how the primates would be kind of interacting with visitors, with tourists, because they can't really afford 
to lose tourist dollars, but they also have to keep not only the gorillas safe, but visitors safe as well. One of the fascinating things about you just mentioned, though, is the mountain gorillas in this time of the virus, you point out they share almost 98% of our DNA is in common with them. So they're as susceptible to respiratory viruses as much as humans would be, right? Yeah, they are, or at least that is the belief. I don't think that any gorillas, at least that is known, have ever caught COVID. Maybe some gorillas in captivity, I seriously doubt it. But because they are so close to humans, it is strongly believed that they could. And they certainly catch other respiratory viruses. They can catch a cold. They can probably catch the flu, which is why even in non-COVID times, they really take care. They watch you. I've been before. If you're sniffling and coughing and sneezing, they really don't want you to go in and see the gorillas because they can catch them. And you can't lose one mountain gorilla because they just form this incredible ecosystem between these three countries. So yes, it is widely believed that because they're so similar to humans that they can also catch these respiratory viruses and deadly ones too. Marcia, you had a lot of contact with a gentleman whom you call the Dr. Fauci of Rwanda. Tell us a little bit about him and how this country is approaching COVID in a way that felt so different to you. What he said was after the genocide, the entire healthcare, all infrastructure in the entire country was decimated. There wasn't a dollar left in the central bank. So Kagame, President Kagame, who is controversial but effective, he started a medical system from scratch. And so when the pandemic happened, they know exactly what to do. Plus, they've also handled Ebola, which has been in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, which Rwanda borders. And they've had many outbreaks of Ebola and not a single case has ever gotten to Rwanda. I mean, they really know how to ramp up their healthcare system. And so it was rated sixth in the world for effectiveness in handling the pandemic. They're very quick to react. They're very quick to close borders. They were one of the first countries to close the border just recently in this Omicron variant wildfire, I guess you'd call it. They're very quick to react and very effective. There are people spread out all over the country in all the districts, in all the regional capitals and things like that. So very, very quick to respond. And Dr. Sabin said, that we were completely ready for this. I mean, we've been through a genocide, like we know how to be prepared for disasters. Here, as you mentioned, there's these are the planets, barely a thousand remaining wild mountain gorillas. And I guess Ashley and I are both interested to know and feel it through your eyes, just as you make the readers feel it through your eyes. And what is that experience like emotionally for you to walk through and then to see them like this? Well, It's transformative, I would say. I've also been on safari and there's nothing like seeing a big cat or seeing lions or seeing a leopard kind of leap across. But these mountain gorillas are, I can only say the emotional reaction that I have or that people have is that they do so closely reflect human behavior. And I don't really know what that's about. So it's sort of like watching a mother preen a baby with the same kind of love that you see with any mother that you'll ever see, the tenderness, the patting of the head, the stroking behind the ears, the swaddling with the arms and rocking. I mean, it's just so human. And they're also such 
beautiful, expressive creatures. And the little babies with their sweet little expressions. And as a mother, I guess, or as a human being, I just, you see these little things kind of running around. You just want to scoop them up and hug them and say like, hey, so sweet. And the other thing is, one of the other things is that the the adolescents act like troublemakers and the silverbacks act like big shots. And there's this whole community. It's kind of like watching the most interesting, symbiotic, symphonic community. All the parts have a role. All of the characters have a role. There's somebody sitting there, somebody. I mean, look, I even slipped into total anthropomorphication of these animals. I mean, there's a young female sitting at the top of a tree, just chomping on some cane, just kind of chilling out on her own kind of looking around and kind of rolling her eyes at what the silly boys are doing down below and the and the fathers rolling around with their toddlers and it's just a really mind-blowing to see these animals and to see these kind of very basic very elemental aspects of primate behavior i can understand why people like diane fossey have really kind of connect with these animals and never leave because you really do make a when you see a, a lion and you think this is the most beautiful thing i've ever seen but i don't really think that there is the kind of pure emotional connection with those animals as you have with these. And plus, just being in their forest and seeing how they behave. Even they have these very human hands too. And I spent a lot of time kind of watching the hands and brushing flies off each other and swatting a little one, like, get out of my way. So I'd say the connection is very profound. And how is the country faring on a tourism front? Obviously, it's so important to the financial health and success of Rwanda. Marsha, are you seeing a lot of tourists back or what's going on there? I think Rwanda does have the reputation of being safe. I think that it has a little bit of a hurdle. It it always surprises me because I think that some of the smartest people I know still think that there's a genocide going on in a way, or maybe not exactly that, but like, "Mm, is this country okay? It caters to very, very high-end tourists. That's one way that they have actually been able to preserve these beautiful nature areas because they really don't bother with mid-level tourism, with kind of mass market tourism. Places like where I stayed, Bisate Lodge, really one of the most mind-blowing hotels I've ever seen. And there's six rooms and they're very, very expensive. So it does cater to a particular kind of traveler. There's also a safari park, a savanna called Akagera. And there's another place in the south that's rainforest where the chimpanzees live. And they have these three national parks where people go. But I Again, one of the reasons that they're such a good destination is because they really handle COVID so well. You're highly monitored when you're there. You're given a code, a number, before you're there. You're given a code before you get on your airplane to Amsterdam to Kigali, and that code stays with you. And the second you arrive at the airport, you're met by a nurse. After passport, you're met by a nurse or a doctor who gives you a PCR test. You go to your hotel and you wait inside the room until your results come back. And if you have a positive test, you're taken to the hospital. (laughs) You're not even allowed to stay in a hotel room. They do a very thorough job of it. And so tourists, I think they want people to know that tourists 
are safe there and that the country is really on board with COVID measures. They have somewhat draconian rules for, say, flouting mask mandates. And 100% of Kigali, as of today, has had at least one dose of the vaccine. So... Listening to your experience of being in Rwanda and seeing the gorillas, and it's made me more determined than ever to get there and see this wild masterpiece. I keep looking at this line you have in your story where you say, an hour with the mountain gorillas is one of the most extraordinary 60 minutes a human being can spend in a lifetime. And I would bet that that's not an overstatement. So I just, again, listening to how you describe it and how safe it is there, but also the opportunity to go into the the wild and to see these animals who are among the last on the planet, but to see them being so cared for. It's an inspiring story. Thank you. Thank you. I don't think it is an overstatement either. I think it's something that everybody ought to do. And thank you so much for asking me to do this. It is our great pleasure to have you. And we can't wait to get you back on here again, talking about another incredible adventure that you've had to share with the readers of Airmail. Thank you so much, you guys. Okay, Marcia, safe travels home. We'll see you when you're back. Well, before we go off gently into that good holiday night, talk to me. Give me something to do. I need your recommendations. Okay. I've got one recommendation. It is a film that's currently on Netflix and I think in theaters. It is the new Jane Campion film, The Power of the Dog. Have you seen this yet, Ashley? No, but I've actually heard rather mixed reviews, Michael, so curious for your take. Okay. I have mixed reviews about other films that are out. I do not have mixed reviews about this. I think it's her updating in many ways of a Western. It's based on a story by Thomas Savage set in Montana in 1925, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, and Jesse Plemons, who I think is sort of this generation's Gene Hackman, and a great newcomer named Cody Smith-McPhee. Cinematically, it's as beautiful as Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, which was also set up in Montana. But this is a story, it's more gothic. It is almost a Cain and Abel story of these two brothers on this ranch. Sometimes it even reminds me of Giant, just the James Dean film. But it is, as I say, much more gothic, gets very dark, very much full of suspense. But I was transported by all the performances. I think Cumberbatch in himself is fantastic. And it's filled with twists. And I think it's, as I said, if you're watching Yellowstone, which is also set in Montana, this is very different, much more, as I say, intense. Sometimes feels like you're almost watching a small Ibsen play, the way some of these scenes unfold. But I loved it. And I think everyone's performances, as I said, are just unforgettable. So that would be not exactly holiday viewing today, but definitely watch it. Yes, I do have one television experience to recommend. There's a really incredible new show on HBO right now. It's called Station Eleven. And this is a television adaptation of the 2014 novel by Emily St. John Mandel. And this was a novel about a pandemic and the changes in society that it has wrought. So you might think that you don't want to read or watch anything more about these times in our lives. However, I do really recommend this show. It stars Gael Garcia Bernal, among many other talented actors. And it's a much more subtle and humane way of looking at these destructive moments in life. And it really reminds us that despite how awful things are, it's our human connection and our ability to relate to other people that makes even the most difficult moments of life bearable. So you can watch it now on HBO Max. It's called Station Eleven. (laughs) 
Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitelli, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. Most of all, thank you for joining us, and thank you to our sponsor, David Yerman. <laughs>